The issue of purity is uh, almost a lost concern today among a church that has focused almost exclusively on reaching the lost and being relevant in a culture. Uh, today's worship services, today's congregations and gatherings are really all about making people feel comfortable and making them feel welcome, and those are certainly good things. But shuffled to the side in the midst of all that is any concern about purity, any concern about those who gather around the church being genuine and being authentic, at least in their faith in Christ. There's much concern, much discussion about authenticity, but not the authenticity necessarily discussed in Scripture. But the Scripture teaches us that far above certainly growth in size, and even far above something like unity. What God desires in a congregation is purity. What He desires in every church is purity. In fact, we read places like 1 John 2.19, where we read that certain people among the congregation went out from us in order to demonstrate that they were not of us. And all of that is looked at as the hand of God. It's all looked at as the work of of our Savior. He's in the business of casting out. He's in the business of purging. He's in the business of removing. Because he desires above all those other things, above size, above, above uh, unity superficially, above all those things, what God desires is purity. And he's given us, at the, at the core of what we do in worship, a ceremony to guarantee that, a ceremony to guard that. We know it as a communion table, as a Lord's table, as a Eucharist. It comes by many names, but it was given from its very inception as a way of certainly commemorating Christ, but also as a way of self-examination. It was at the heart of Christian worship from the earliest of days And at the heart of the celebration itself is a sort of self-purging, a self-purifying, self-examination that's supposed to take place when we participate in this table. Now, as we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning, this is really what was lost for the Corinthian church. They were coming together. They were coming together for worship and coming together for the celebration of the Lord's table, but it was anything but a pure event. As we began to look at last week uh, from verse 17 in chapter 11, really through the end of the chapter, as Paul begins to address their gathering together for the Lord's table, what was taking place wasn't, wasn't anything that was representative of what God would have been pleased with. What it was was a feast of selfishness. It was a feast of pride. It was a feast of, of, of egotistical and self-righteous people. They were coming together, you remember, with a sort of agape meal that would have been celebrated by the early church, a feast that came at the end of the workday where people would gather together after work on Sunday and they would prepare for their, their worship service. But as people showed up from the working class and from the slave class, 
What they were finding was the upper class Christians, the wealthier Christians, had already arrived, had already helped themselves to the best of the food, had already sort of started their table fellowship in exclusion of everyone else. And so what they were arriving at was hurt and pain and, and uh, sort of a, a partitioning, if you will, of the congregation into sort of the haves and the haves not have not. So there was really no sensitivity to the burdens of these people. There was no effort really at genuine love. It was all about loving yourself. It was all about maintaining your status. And so Paul comes in verses 17 through 22 to rebuke them for this, to tell them that what they're doing, even if it's outwardly uh, representative of what the Lord might have commanded, Inwardly, it had nothing to do with what he ever would be pleased with. Now, this morning, as we come back to this, Paul elaborates, beginning in verse 23 all the way through the end of the chapter, he sort of unfolds this even more, demonstrating for us that the Lord's table ought to call for sober self-evaluation every time we come to it. It ought to come with sober self-evaluation. And Paul is going to outline for us basically four factors of the Lord's table that call for this sort of sober self-evaluation so that a church which regularly participates in this, a church which in obedience to the Lord's command continually gives itself to this celebration will have as a factor in its worship an ongoing purging, an ongoing purification within its fellowship. To that end, Paul gives us these four factors that came with communion and continue down to us, which he outlines beginning in verse 23. He he reminds us, first of all, that there was a deceiver at the very first table. That there was a deceiver there. He writes, I I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. He presents this teaching about the Lord's table within the context of the betrayer, the deceiver, Judas. He doesn't have to mention that, but he does. He could have simply said, look, I give you what I received from the Lord, that the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it and go on with the ceremony. He could have said all that, but he doesn't. He mentions the betrayer. He wants us to be mindful that this took place on the night when Christ was betrayed. And you cannot overstate the lesson that's given to us there. The most tragic story ever known of someone who fell away from the faith. This individual we all know was named Judas, a man who sets the standard of the definition of a traitor and a defector and a betrayer for all time. And no other offense in history is, rises to the level of Judas except maybe Adam's sin, which plunged all of mankind into condemnation. But Judas, of course, like Adam, who walked with God in the cool of the evening, and we begin to wonder, how could you do that and then still walk away from God? Judas walked with Christ for three years, 
three years walking alongside of him, three years hearing his teaching, three years watching his miracles, three years watching his mercy and his grace and his kindness and all of those things visibly on display all the time. And you wonder how in the world could this happen? You sort of read the account. If you have your Bibles, look with me at John 13, the scene of the Last Supper laid out for us by John. And we read there in John 13. It was during the feast of the Passover. And Jesus knew the hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during the supper, this, this Passover supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it to his waist. He poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with a towel that was wrapped around him. This all takes place, as we said, in the midst of this this, this Passover meal, Jesus, who for three years had demonstrated kindness and grace and mercy to so many, had demonstrated kindness and grace to his, even his own disciples, now gives them one final lesson of servants, service, one final lesson of love. He's giving them a visible demonstration of the sacrifice that he will make on the cross. A sacrifice that wasn't just a one-time event. It was the course of his life. He, he, he gave himself up continually for them. And he's demonstrating to them what this looks like. And yet in the midst of this, we read that Satan has already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. And he will eventually not just put the thoughts in his head, he will eventually enter. That is, he will possess Judas. Further down in verse 20, they were now eating the Passover meal. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit, testifying and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus, and down in verse 26, tells his disciples, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. They would have been sitting around for this Passover feast, a large table, low to the ground, maybe about 12 inches off the ground. And there would have been benches or really large pillows of some sort around the table and they would have all been reclining on one elbow their left elbow and eating with their right hand uh, really up against one another uh, laying with their feet outward from the table they would have been very intimate in that setting and we're told that there was one disciple the disciple Jesus loved who was on his right hand side that would have been John but we assume that Judas must have been within arm's reach. He must have been maybe right behind Christ on his left-hand side, one of the prominent places 
in all the table, sitting very, very close. He would have been in one of the central seats at this table. Christ is able easily to dip his bread in a cup and hand it to Judas. Verse 27 here in John 13 says, After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do it quickly. Now no one at the table, verse 28 says, knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. You might think, if ever, if ever there is somebody who is safe from the reach of Satan, It would be the guy sitting right next to Jesus. Right? I mean, if ever there was somebody who was safe from the reach of the evil one, you would think it would be the guy who walked with Christ for three years, who was part of the inner circle, who was part of the inner crowd. You would think that that guy would would have some sort of extra protection some sort of wall, some sort of partition that would guard him against the work of the evil one. You would think that if someone was going to be protected against Satan and against worldliness, that by being a part of a group of disciples and being that close to Jesus would settle the matter, right? I mean, this is the way that people think. They think, you know, I'm going to protect myself from Satan. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut myself off from all of the worldly influences. I'm going to move up to some mountaintop. I'm going to isolate myself. I'm going to be just in my little commune of Christianity. And there I'll be safe from Satan. You might actually be more susceptible. You might actually make yourself more of a target. I mean, if ever you thought there was somebody who'd be safe, it'd be this guy. Right in the middle of all the action. Right in the middle of all the disciples. And yet we're given this very, very graphic picture of the betrayer. How did this happen? What happened here? What went wrong here? I mean, how could this happen? Somebody who listens to the very voice of Christ, who's sitting at his feet, just a few feet away from him, hearing truth over and over and over again. How could this happen? Well, we don't always know the mysteries of unbelief and the hardness of someone's heart. But it should give us a a chill down our spine. For those of us who ponder the betrayal of Judas and realize how close he was to Christ, to someone who saw all the miracles and could still be so deceived. And there were factors, of course. There was greed. Judas was carrying the money back and we're told taking money from it all along the way. There was pride. There was lust. There was all kinds of false motives. There are all kinds of those things that put people into religious situations and they fake the part of being a disciple. But each time we come to the Lord's table, Paul wants us to be reminded that the betrayer was there. 
But right at the heart of it was the deceiver. A man with every conceivable benefit, and yet still, he wasn't true. It's interesting, if you sequence the events of that Thursday evening, that Passover meal, what you realize is that Judas was there for the Passover meal. But before the meal ended, and before the Lord officially instituted the communion table, this is the point where he says to Judas, what you do, do quickly, and he sends him away. He basically sends him away before the communion ever takes place, because Christ has always desired a pure communion table. He's always desired that those who come and participate in the bread or the cup are only those who are genuine and who are sincere. He doesn't want it profaned, in other words, with unbelief. He wants sober self-examination from you and from me and from everyone who comes to the table. He wants you in your heart to be asking yourself the question, am I the new deceiver? Am I coming and profaning this table by the kind of unbelief that was manifest even in Judas? That's what Paul reminds us of as he brings to light here in 1 Corinthians 11, the betrayer. Because of the presence of the deceiver, there ought to be self-examination. That's not the only reason. There's also the doctrine. There's also what the table is all about. And it, honestly, it takes time to unfold this doctrine. You would think that it would be fairly simple. A few simple words that Christ pronounced over the table and that we recite every time we come to it. You would think with just a few simple words, there would be just a simple statement that could summarize all of this doctrine. But that's exactly the opposite. Because there's embedded in those few words so much truth. Truth that we're told ought to be proclaimed every every time we come to this table. Paul writes to us here that Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. All of this took place, as we said, during the Passover meal that would have started the evening with a word of prayer and then a cup that would have been drunk. In fact, this was four, one of four ceremonial cups that would have been taken throughout the entire Passover meal. The first one comes with this initial prayer of thanksgiving, and then everyone would take the cup together, and then they would wash their hands before the meal. It was probably at this point when Christ actually rose from the table and took the basin and and not only offered it for the washing of their hands, but went on and washed their feet. And so this was the first part, the meal, eating, uh, drinking the cup together and then washing their hands and then moving on to the eating of the unleavened bread where the bread would be dipped in sauces and one of them a bitter sauce, sort of symbolizing the, the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. This was probably the point where Christ dipped the bread and handed it to Judas and then sent him away. After that would come the singing of the Hallel, which was a series of hymns from the Old Testament Psalms, actually, 
from Psalm 113 to Psalm 18, those sequence of psalms were known as the Hallel. They were the songs that were traditionally sung along with the Passover. And so they would begin by singing Psalm 113 and Psalm 114 after the eating of the bread. And then would come the second cup and the eating of the roasted lamb, the Passover lamb. At this point, the patriarch of the family would stand up and traditionally ask the youngest person at the table uh, who could speak. They would ask him, Why, what do all these things represent? When the child answers, the head of the table would go on to offer an explanation of the feast and tell the whole story. He would lead them with an explanation of the, the Passover event and the bringing out of the people of Israel. And, and all built into the ceremony was this time of remembrance. In other words, the meal was not primarily nutritional. It was theological. It was a theological meal. That's why you ate it. You ate it so that you could uh, enunciate these past events and stir reminders of God's faithfulness. Everyone understood this. After this time of remembrance, there would come a third cup. And this appears to have been the time when Christ instituted what we know as the Lord's table, communion. Christ apparently had taken some of the leftover bread, the unleavened bread, to introduce this new ceremony, this breaking of bread. He took the cup that was an official third cup, and with it and with the bread instituted the Lord's table. The, sometimes we call it the Eucharist because it, begins, it began with this thanksgiving. He gave thanks before they took the cup. And the word Eucharist basically means thanksgiving. So he does that. He gives thanks. He, he lifts up the bread. He says, this is my body, which is for you. I know the King James has broken for you. That's not really in the best manuscripts. Just those simple words. This, this is my body, which is for you. And maybe as a statement against the importance of that doctrine. Maybe as a statement against the importance of that phrase and, and, and our obedience and observing. Maybe as a statement against that is the fact that perhaps no words in all of Scripture have been so twisted throughout all of time as those simple words. It, it very early on formed in the minds of some people that somehow the statement when Christ said, this is my body, that somehow that was supposed to communicate what they call, quote, the real presence of Christ. The fact that he is there in some mystical way at the table when we participate together. This is the basic idea behind the Roman Catholic Mass, the Lord's table, that the elements, the bread and the wine actually become real flesh and blood the moment the priest pronounces the consecration. In other words, when he stands and gives his official words, that bread and that cup are miraculously changed into some other substance. The wine is transformed into the literal blood of Christ. The bread is transformed into his literal flesh. And these transformed substances, not just their meaning, the Catholic Church says are what 
are offered. Even though your sense of smell and your sense of taste would tell you that these are just bread and wine. Even though everything that you would certainly rely on in this world as elements of discernment would tell you the otherwise. This uh, transforming known as transubstantiation has been the official doctrine of the Catholic Church since the fourth Lateran Council, 1215. But really, it goes all the way back to the second century. Ideas about this real presence were emerging in the church. Transubstantiation. Now, the reason this doctrine of transubstantiation is so critical is that because it allows the Catholic Church to literally re-sacrifice Christ every time. Every time they come to the Mass, which is every week. When the, when the Catholic priest pronounces the consecration of the bread and the cup and the body is changed, they proceed to offer the body and the blood of God as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Uh, Catholic John O'Brien, a Catholic priest in his book called The Faith of Millions, The Credentials of the Catholic Church, writes, when the priest announced the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne, places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of men. That's the doctrine of the Catholic Mass. That's what's happening. They believe every time they come together, Christ is being re-sacrificed. And it's central to what the Catholic Church is all about. It's central to how they worship. Now, to be fair, many people who go to Catholic Church never understand this. As a matter of fact, the Roman Catholic Church for many years and in many places still today uh, conducts the entire Mass in Latin. So that most people don't even understand what's being said. You may not know this, but there's a point in the pronunciation in the Catholic Church where the priest literally offers up the point where he actually says that the bread is turned to the body of Christ. It is in Latin, hoc est corpus meum. And people through the years have heard the priest hold up the wafer, a wafer and say, Hulk as corpus meum. And they never understood what it meant, but they knew that was important. And so they started to sort of mimic what they heard, at least the best they could. And they sort of, instead of Hulk as corpus, they sort of, sort of came up with Hulk as pocus. And that's where the phrase came from. That's, that's that idea. That this whole thing is just hocus pocus. It's just some magical event where, where suddenly things change. And confusion, though, is not a problem for the Catholic Church because really understanding what the whole thing about is about is beside the point. We're really understanding what's being said or sung or whatever it might be is unnecessary. Because as long as you go and eat the sacrifice that's offered by the priest, your sins are wiped away. And so for 2,000 years, the message has been replaced by ritual. 
And the, the priests offering up the sacrifice again and again and again, week after week, day after day, continually claiming to appease the wrath of God against anything that you've done. It doesn't take much to see that this really is little more than pagan religion. This is a pagan altar, excuse me, a pagan altar with a pagan sacrifice offered up in a pagan way. Pagan religion in the name of Christianity. If you ever doubt that, just go study something called Corpus Christi. That is a celebration that takes place throughout the world today where if there's ever uh, uh, something of a leftover wafer, in other words, if all of it is not consumed, what they do is they literally take that wafer and they put it in a little ornamental box about that big and they call it the sanctuary and this box is then mounted on an ark and placed on poles which are then put on the shoulders of priests or deacons and those priests or deacons lead in procession out of the church building and through the streets of the village as the congregation and adoring crowds along the street bow down to worship the wafer. They literally worship this wafer because they have been taught that it now is Christ. Literally. In fact, there's renewed interest in America and some Catholic churches, groups are being organized within the church to come to the Catholic church and give constant worship to the wafer. Even now. They literally set up round-the-clock worship. Families committing to go one hour at a time and come and sit before the wafer and worship it. Once it's consecrated, once the wine is consecrated, it is Christ. That is, by the way, why the Catholic Church has ceased serving wine to the people because it is the blood of Christ and they would be mortified if any of that was ever spilt. And so in the Catholic Church, if you go today, you're not served wine. Only the priest drinks the wine. As a matter of fact, you don't even touch the wafer in most traditional Catholic services. You go and kneel before the priest and he places the wafer on your tongue. You're not even allowed to touch the wafer. And all of this stuff is, is attended with incredible pageantry. If you've ever seen a mass or if you ever watch one on YouTube, what you'll notice is all these movements and gestures and covering and uncovering and placing of a towel and placing hands flat and placing hands up and the priests uh, doing all of these gestures and all of these genuine uh, reflections and holding up his hands in prayer at exactly the right moment. And every one of these movements supposedly presenting something of an aspect of the suffering of Christ. And, 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 and through all of it, there's never any explanation to the congregation of what's going on. Because they're not there to understand. They're there to just simply be spectators in the whole event. This, this pagan worship, this pagan idolatry with Christian terms mixed in. It, it provides for many things. But one of the things it certainly provides for is impurity. See, if you don't even know what's going on, 
If you don't even know what the bread is all about, if you don't even know what the cup's all about, there is no proclamation of the cross. There is no discussion about a once-for-all sacrifice that's been given on your behalf. All there is is a deed, an act, ceremony. And as long as you take it, your sins will be forgiven. You see, it paves the way for any kind of Judas to come in. It paves the way for any kind of person. Once you externalize the whole procedure, then there's no longer any need for self-evaluation. This really, though, is not what the Lord's talking about. When he says, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. He's not calling you to re-sacrifice him again. He's calling you to remember. To remember. This is why the reformers reacted so strongly to this. You understand? This is why at the core of the Reformation, at the core of the Reformation was a revolt against the mass. This is why they recoiled against the whole thing. And men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli started to call for an abandonment of the mass and the re-sacrificing of Christ and a focus back on the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. And they, they proclaimed loudly, sola uh, Christos, uh, Christ alone. He's all that you need. You don't need the mass anymore. And the whole idea of this this magical hocus-pocus event was jettisoned out the door. And yet, as they did that, there was an incredible backlash against them. And if you read the documents, you read the criticisms on the Catholic Church, what you find is there was an incredible outcry because they were supposedly profaning the, this table that had been, it had been core and central to worship for all of a thousand years. And all this drama around the Eucharist had become so central to what Christians understood as worship. And so during the Reformation, there was this fear that if there was nothing, if there was nothing magical, nothing mystical that took place, that the practicing of the Lord's table would soon become meaningless. And as a matter of fact, it would be forgotten altogether. Because then I was looked at as unnecessary. Reformers are very sensitive to this criticism. That somehow they would diminish and undermine the importance of the Lord's table. And so while rejecting transubstantiation, they, they created different explanations. Explanations that involved its own kind of mystery. They denied that the physical presence of Christ was there in the elements. But they wanted to hold on to the drama of the table. They wanted to hold on to the idea that somehow there was still some real presence. Some mystical presence of Christ there in the bread. John Calvin famously said, Our souls feed on Christ's own flesh in precisely the same manner as bread imparts vigor to our bodies. The the flesh of Christ, therefore, is spiritual nourishment because it gives life to us. It gives life because the Holy Spirit pours into us the life which dwells in it. So the bread has life in it. And we eat the bread and it's poured into us, this this external element. 
The idea was something still supernatural takes takes place. Alfred Edersheim, a Presbyterian minister in the 19th century, says, if we may venture an explanation, it would be this, that it would be that this received in the Holy Eucharist conveys to the soul the same effect as the bread and the wine to the body. uh, Receiving the bread and the cup in Holy Communion is really, though spiritually, to the soul, what the outward elements are to the body. So in other words, you, if you don't take the bread, you're going to be somehow, you're going to be starved. You're going to be, you're going to be lacking something spiritually. Louis Burkhoff says, Christ, though not bodily and locally present in the supper, is yet present and enjoyed in his entire person, both body and blood. This, uh, Burkhoff says, emphasizes the mystical communion of believers with the entire person of the Redeemer at the communion event. Another popular reformed systematic theology today says, quote, as signs and seals of the covenant of grace, the sacraments are a means of grace in which Christ himself is really spiritually present and offers himself and the benefits of his death to Christians who receive the supper. It is this spiritual union that constitutes the essence of the sacrament And it is because of this union that the sacrament confers grace when received by faith. So you see that they've left aside the, 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 let me just say, the chemical and the organic change to the elements. But they've maintained this notion of some real presence in the bread and in the cup. What's the problem with all these mystical theories? Well, first of all, that they have nothing to do with Scripture. When Jesus said, this is my body, he no more intended his disciples there that night to understand that he had just taken a hunk of his own flesh and offered it to them. Then he Then he intended them to understand whenever he once stood before him and said, I am the vine and you are the branches, that somehow he is some leafy product. Or when he tells them in John chapter 10, I am the door, that somehow he is a composite of wooden material. No, Christ Christ expected them to understand it exactly the way that the Passover had been understood. The fact that there are elements in the meal which represent by way of memory something that previously took place. And it's an important time of remembrance. But there's a transference from the old covenant, the Passover meal, to the new covenant, which was the sacrifice of Christ, and we remember today. So you see, when you come to the table, you come and you can eat the bread and you can drink the cup. You can do it a thousand times if you want to. It'll do you no good. It doesn't do anything for you. But it does represent something that was done for you. It does represent a Savior who gave His life for you. That's called the substitutionary atonement. The fact that someone took your place. The fact that when we, when we raise up that bread, we're representing the fact that you deserved something. You deserved God's wrath. You deserve God's judgment. Because you have sins that you can never eliminate. No matter how many ceremonies you participate in, no matter how many 
church services you go to. In fact, you can be right in the middle of the disciples. You can be right in the inner core. You can be right there among a bunch of Christians all the time and still be lost and damned to hell. Well, what the table represents is that all the fury and wrath of God against your sin was poured out not on you, but on Christ if you have faith in Him. This is the doctrine of the Lord's table. This is what we proclaim every time we come back and we lift up this bread. We proclaim this, that Christ's body was given. And that if you are, or if you are wrapped with guilt, and if you know the shame of your sin, in other words, if you're willing to confess who you are really, if you're willing to take off the mask and stop pretending and stop faking, if you're willing to really admit that you are a sinner, that you have offended a holy God, that you cannot control the desires of your heart, that you are enslaved to sin that is destroying your life, if you're willing to admit all those things, then the good news is there's a sacrifice that's been given to wipe away your sins. This is the real meaning of this table. It's the real meaning of the cross. This is what we remember every time we come together. And that those who participate in the table are those who have experienced forgiveness. We've confessed our sins. And we have asked God for forgiveness because of His mercy in sending Christ. He can give it. This is a glorious image. It's a glorious celebration. It's a glorious table. We're grateful that the Lord has given it to us. We want to be those who participate in it with genuine, sincere, authentic hearts. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning. So thankful that we get to celebrate time and time again with genuine faith and with understanding. What took place for us so long ago? Lord, we know the temptation to replace you with ritual, to replace genuine faith with just the facade of religion. We know those things are there. I pray this morning, Lord, each and every one of us would examine ourselves, would look into the genuineness of our faith, with with sincere desire to know if we are a Judas, betrayer, one who comes, gathers with the church, but in our hearts, we've already left you, but we never knew you. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who know that that is them. I pray that they would seek you out this week. They would seek you, humble hearts and humble confession. May you take control of their life. May you make them your own. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.